Welcome, welcome everyone to uh, Borderlands Conversations between the Church and the City. On this uh, session, uh, we have our first panel uh, with the title COP26, Fullness of Life for All. We are very thankful for everyone that engaged in their participation and presence with us during our last night live conversation. And on this podcast, you'll be able to listen to the main sharing from our guest speakers and panelists of today. From a very diverse background and Christian traditions, uh, they share with us um, in a wide way and from their own experiences and their own relevant contributions, what could be the questioning, the theological approach, but also the public sphere narrative uh, in relation with creation climate change and the possible questions and outcomes that we can engage with as individuals and communities around the world. Thank you for listening and enjoy the conversation that is built among all of us together. And Welcome, welcome again to Borderlands, and I welcome our first speaker of tonight. Um, we will listen uh, sequentially um, in order uh, from Matthew Lafferty, and then from Laurent, and then from Chris. Um, Reverend Matthew Lafferty, our first speaker, is the current director of the Methodist Ecumenical Office in Rome, and oversees the worldwide Methodist families relationship with the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy See. Reverend Lafferty is a presbyter in the United Methodist Church and maintains a clergy standing uh, in the Methodist Church in Great Britain as the Union of Methodist and Valdensians Churches in Italy. He previously served uh, mission assignments in Vienna, Austria, and Moscow in Russia, where he was deeply involved in migrant ministry. He, he is originally from Crestline, Ohio, USA, and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and International Studies from the Methodist Related Ohio Wesleyan University, and also uh, has a Master's of Divinity degree from Yale University. He has been a member of the World Methodist Council since 2006, and uh, personally an old friend uh, in different ways of collaborating, working together for a few years now. Uh, thank you very much, Matthew, for joining us today, safely back at home in Rome. And then this is your time, and we'll be happy to listen from you. And thank you for being here with us. Great, thank you. I, I first have to say happy, happy St. Andrew's Day. Uh, I was preaching earlier today uh, on the Feast of St. Andrew and um, was was thinking about our friends in Scotland. I, I, I also am helping to fill in, there's a Church of Scotland congregation here in Rome, and uh, so I was thinking very much, and I'm feel, helping to fill in why they're without a minister, so I was thinking about uh, old and new friends in Scotland, so it's good to be with you um, this this evening. I, I, I was given several questions to ponder as a possible starting point, and um, like many people, I, I said, these are great questions and I don't wanna answer any of them, but, but rather wanted to think about what sustains us as Christians in, uh, in our work for the protection of our common home, 
our care of creation, as well as our um, demand for climate justice, particularly in, in these days after uh, COP26. And for me, I, I believe that it's ideas or, or for us as Christians are our beliefs that sustain our action um, and work around climate justice. And so I wanna frame first come with that and say, we're gonna talk about ideas and, and theological ideas. But I also wanted to frame it in terms of um, the work that I do. And part of the work that I'm responsible for here in Rome uh, is working with our Methodist Roman Catholic dialogue. So I wanna ask these questions in terms of of a framework of the Methodist Roman Catholic International Dialogue, the fruits of that work, um, and thinking about how do we develop a framework that sustains sustains our, our uh, work for creation and our common home, particularly post um, COP26. Um, if you have questions, please in the chat, let, let, let write them. I'll, I'll, I'm trying not to, to use um, a lot of technical language. Uh, to make some of the things I say accessible. But I have uh, two points that I, I wanna talk tonight about is the importance of our common baptism and our call, call to holiness as two of the, the central pillars for our work um, for protection of our common home and care of creation. One of the three goals of the World Methodist Council, which is the worldwide communion of 80 Methodist and Wesleyan and uniting churches, is the development of ecumenical and interreligious relationships, of which the World Methodist Council has been tasked with, quote, fostering unified participation in the ecumenical movement and to provide a means of consultation and cooperation between the World Methodist Council as a world communion of churches and the other world communions of the Christian church, end quote. To this end, the World Methodist Council has initiated and participated in several forms of what we call theological dialogue. This is where, where theologians, scholars, experts sit down with, with similar kinds of people from a different uh, Christian tradition uh, to discuss an important theological points that help us to find convergence or, or where, we, where we diverge. And Methodists have been doing this kind of work um, throughout the, the 20 and 20th, 21st century by having formal dialogues with Lutherans, Baptists, Anglicans, the Reformed, the Salvation Army, and the African instituted churches. But unique among this kind of formal theological dialogue has been the World Methodist Council's dialogue with the Roman Catholic Church. Soon after the Second Vatican Council concluded in 1965, Methodists, along with a number of other global communions, were invited to begin formal theological dialogue with the Vatican through its Pontifical Council on Promoting Christian Unity. For Methodists worldwide, this theological dialogue has been ongoing since its very first meeting in 1967, meaning that there's been no pause in Methodist Catholic international dialogue since they began nearly 55 years ago. And not even COVID-19 prevented the commission from meeting, though its last meetings uh, were done virtually. This approach of the World Methodist Council with Roman Catholic Church stands out among its dialogues because the World Methodist Council normally only initiates kind of occasional dialogues where, where they, they focus on a particular theme for a, a period of time with, um, 
with another world communion. So Lutherans were working and preparing uh, for a round of conversations with the Reformed churches. Last week, there was a webinar to celebrate the last report, which is 10 years ago, the Salvation Army Methodist Dialogue. But what's unique is that, uh, that we've had this work with Catholics ongoing for 55 years, which means that we have said a lot together and that the fruits of that work helps us to situate these questions of why Methodists should care about creation and our common home and why we should be involved in these questions and these issues ecumenically. First, we share uh, one common baptism in Jesus Christ. Now, it must be pointed out that this belief, our common baptism, is not a new belief among Methodists uh, and our relationships with other Christians. Indeed, there was a lot of work in the 20th century around this idea of mutual recognition of baptism, meaning that a Methodist who somebody was baptized in the Methodist church would be seen as fully and properly baptized by Roman Catholics or by the Church of Scotland or by, by, um, by other churches. The mutual recognition of our common baptism really reached its, its apex in, in the faith and order movement of the World Council of Churches with its, its seminal document, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry in 1962. So what this means is that Methodists recognize that through baptism, we are united with Christ and brought into God's renewed creation. Our sins are forgiven and we are incorporated into the community of, community of faith, which is the church and initiated into Christ's royal priesthood. Through our baptisms, we embrace each other, not only Methodists, but all Christians as siblings in Christ. And we mutually accept the call to live a holy life together in Christ. Our dialogue with Catholics has helped us Methodists tease out then what we talk about is the missional imperative um, of, our, of our mutual and common baptism. In a summary of the report, The Grace Given to You in Christ, in two, which was published in 2006, it says that Catholics and Methodists give full recognition to each other's celebration of the sacrament of baptism. Our common baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is our sacramental bond of unity, the visible foundation of the deep communion which already exists between us. And I think this part's the important part and which impels us to deeper unity with each other and participation in the life and mission of Christ himself. These last words are critical for helping us to embrace our ecumenical call, our call to work with other Christians for the mission of the church. And that mission extends to our care of creation and the protection of our common home. Secondly, we are called to be holy. Now, one of the charisms or marks or gifts that Methodists often uh, give to the entire church is our Wesleyan understanding of holiness. For Methodists, we love to talk about holiness, how God in Christ has called us to live holy lives, and that through the Holy Spirit, we grow in God's saving love. When I would teach confirmation in my former congregations, I would often ask the confirmands, now that we are baptized, and now that we receive salvation in and through Jesus Christ, what do we do now? And for Methodists, we recognize in God's grace, the work of the Holy Spirit leads us 
before we know Christ, this is provenient or protecting grace, that grace that opens us to recognize that we are sinful in need of God's grace. This is justifying or justification. But what we also emphasize is that the Holy Spirit continues to work within us as we grow in our love of God and our love of neighbor. Methodists have found a willing and helpful dialogue partner in our Catholic siblings. During the early parts of the 21st century in this Methodist Catholic dialogue, where we've picked up this theme of holiness. In the latest report of the Methodist Catholic Dialogue Commission, which was published in 2016, the call to holiness. Surprisingly, Methodists and Catholics agreed on a number of issues related to holy living. Seeing that the call to holy living within each other's own traditions, though we often describe it in very different ways. I'm just going to read a few excerpts instead of trying to summarize, just read from a few excerpts from the text. Uh, one excerpt is sanctifying grace is not only interior to the human soul, but also involves a commitment to holy living in every sphere of human life. Catholics and Methodists confess together that good works of mercy and piety are the fruit a justification and an obligation to holy living. As such, they belong to God's victory over sin and death. For Catholic sanctifying grace is a habitual act, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul into itself to enable it to live with God and to act with his love. Similarly, for Methodist sanctifying grace is a habitual disposition that, work, that faith working through love produces good works in the lives of the faithful. Another excerpt is, as God's chosen agent and instrument of a call, the call to holiness, the church on earth is essentially missionary, oriented towards the transformation, the transformation of all things into the new creation in Christ. And lastly, holiness and Christian unity belong together as twin aspects of the same relationship with the Trinity, such that the pursuit of either involves the pursuit of the other. In what is a soon-to-be published report, which is not yet available, Methodists and Catholics also say that holy living in the world requires that, Christian, that Christians take action to support reconciliation in the world. Catholics and Methodists are called to speak into political debates concerning the environment and how human beings are called to inhabit God's creation. So my point tonight is that baptism and holiness are theological tools to help ground and sustain our work for creation care and protection of our common home, particularly in these times after COP26. We should embrace them as central to our theological frameworks. And while basic human decency demands action on the degradation of creation and the destruction of our common home, Methodists along with all Christians must act from the core of our Christian faith to undergird and strengthen our Christian witness and action in creation care and in climate justice. We do not care about creation or our common home simply because we're good people, though I hope that certainly we all are. But we tend to creation and demand government action to protect God's creation because one, through our baptisms, we are called to be co-workers with God as God's agents of reconciliation. For all of creation has been renewed in Christ. Two, in our recognizing our mutual baptisms, we are called to the mission of the church 
which extends to all of creation, including our living world. Three, holiness demands that loving God means loving creation, including humankind. And four, Christian unity is rooted in our baptism and in our holy living. And therefore we must work together with all Christians to care for our creation, to protect our common home and to demand climate justice. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Matthew, uh, for sharing with us about this common grounding as people called Methodist Wesleyan in the diverse communions that embrace the, the Methodist Wesleyan United and Uniting Churches. We will hear now from uh, Laurent. Uh, Laurent is a Methodist uh, minister from the Methodist Church in Great Britain. He is based nearby Glasgow, originally from France, um, economist by training, and also he has been very, very active and contributing to the questions that we are addressing in this diverse panel in terms of creation, um, ecology, and, um, and possible action from churches on theology. And we welcome you, uh, Laurent, uh, for, thank you, thank you for being here with us. And it's such a good opportunity to listen from you. And well, the time is yours, Adam. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Um, I'll just put together some reflection on um, Christian theology and environment following COP26, where I met several people with different views on the issue. And I met people who are not Christian, who are very interested in environment and ask us, you Christian, what are you doing about environment? What is your position about environment? And I started to reflect about that, that idea, uh, looking in the scriptures about what the scriptures is telling us about us caring for the environment. And I was quite surprised in what I thought. Uh, so I put together some of my, my reflection on it. First, uh, I'm going to use a term environment rather than nature, because nature, I think that it is a very woolly term, so it doesn't, it's not very clear. And very often the term nature is about an image of idealized um, environment we have, where environment is where we live. So I will use very often the word environment rather than nature or ecology, which is a technical term. But for millennia, humanity was one of the animals on this earth, part of the ecosystem, as much as a predator as we were a prey. Environment was seen very negatively and hostile. Think about illness, wild animals, weather, and we know a lot about that in Scotland. Our environment was adversary, often winning over us. For a long time, and still now, we had a very hostile relationship with our environment. Often when humans have expressed respect to their environment, it was out of fear or necessity, not generous or free love, as sometimes romantic pictures of nature are offered to us on TV or movies. We never had an harmonious relationship with our environment, and that is a fact, and we need to keep that as part of the conversation we are the necessity to domesticate our environment. It was a necessity for us to survive. 
The Romantic movement was a change in our recent Western history, but their love for nature more than for environment. They fantasized about nature, the way environment should look like or be, but still, with no doubt, their understanding of nature was to serve humans. Rousseau was idolizing nature and saw in the human society all the perversion of nature and environment. But even in his case, humans remain the center of the understanding of the ecosystem and the world. Because our theology is based on our understanding, our perception of the world, therefore our theology has been for very, very long time, very anthropocentric meaning putting the human at the center of our understanding. In fact, the big fight of the churches was trying to understand how humans should act with each other for the glory of God, not how we should interact with our non-human environment. Of course, there are beautiful passages in our Bible about environment. Of course, there are beautiful Christian artifacts, hymns, poetry, idealizing nature. They have been written from the church fathers and also from church mothers looking at the environment. There has been amazing Christian advocating the protection of environment such as Francis of Assisi, but they were remarkable exceptions, almost queer. Often Christian idolized nature as a representation of the lost Garden of Eden. And it is a longing for what was lost not the environment we are in. In fact, many Christians seeking the Garden of Eden are looking somewhere else, away, not in our current environment. Also, Paul dualism of heaven versus the world did not help when Augustine made it an important part of our doctrine. What was important was what was in heaven, not what was here. Here, all is perverted, including our environment. So you, we will understand easily how, as Christian, we had a trouble relationship with the environment. Nevertheless, other parts of the Bible are offering a different vision, where this world, our current environment, is part of the world to come. We can see it in the apocalyptic writings of the Bible, especially Revelation, but also in a lesser way, Daniel. The whole creation needs redemption which means three things. One, environment is not paradise and it needs redemption. Two, there is hope for environment. And three, we are all in together, humanity and environment. Back on earth, because we are not living in the Bible. And as I said earlier, our context and our understanding influence our theology and relation with our environment. Enlightenment and humanism have slowly reinstalled humanity at the center of our understanding of the world. It included a renewed interest into social justice, which has always been at the core of our scriptures and theologies. But social justice has direct consequences on our relation with our environment. We needed more food, more housing, and more transport and trade to create work for people. So environment has been very much put aside not part of the equation for many Christians involved in social justice. Things have changed, but that was the case and still the case now very often. Great Christians promoted parks and gardens 
but it was, if you think about it, it was more about humans entertainment, not for caring very much about nature. And in our 20th century, the great narratives were questioned and challenged, what we call postmodernism. Not only the system of religion were challenged, but also our understanding of humanity and modernity. Two world wars have challenged our ego love and satisfaction. He questioned the center place given to humans. Was human progress always a good idea? But again, listen to the speech around us now in the 21st century. It remained very anthropocentric. Survival interests have replaced economic interests, but it remained human interests. So if humanity is not at the center of our postmodern understanding of the world, what should it be? Postmodernism has created a fake vacuum. Why do I call it fake? Because I will argue that we are still planning humanity to be at the center of the world, but maybe in a different way. But if we were looking at alternative to a new humanity at the center of the world, what else could be at the center of our understanding of the world? Nature? Some would put nature at the center of our world, and you can hear it in the slogan of people in the streets of people on social media. But what is this nature? There is a risk to confuse nature with Arcadia, a pure utopia. First, as I have explained, I can't find any evidence that humanity has ever been living in harmony with its environment. And secondly, the 20th century taught us the hard way, the danger to put utopia at the center of our world. See Sovietism, libertarianism, and Nazism, the ultimate logical answer, putting nature in the center of understanding of this world will be to remove humanity. Obviously something we cannot accept as Christian. So if nature, if nature or humanity cannot be at the center of understanding of the world, what is left? Could God be back at the center of understanding of the world? I can hear sometimes the idea that putting God at the center will be the same as putting nature at the center of our world. As Christians, we see God as our creator. It brings an interesting question of God in the pantheistic dimension, meaning is the creator the same as the creation? Pantheism is rejected by the majority of Christian churches and movement. Our scriptures, Genesis 1, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 139, and Revelation 4, just to quote some of them, are clearly separating the creation from the creator. Christian orthodoxy confirms that creation was created ex deo, out of God, and ex nihilo, out of nothing. Putting God at the center is not the same as putting nature at the center of our understanding of the world, and vice versa. Nevertheless, Putting God at the center will have a clear advantage. Is it will mean to put nature and humans at the periphery, not at the center. Putting nature, environment, and humans together. A man in the 18th century close to my heart and to many of you is John Wesley. He is an interesting thinker for all of us, even for non-Methodists, because he was living at the end of the agricultural, agricultural revolution and at the birth of the industrial revolution. He witnessed the exploitation of nature and humanity for economic gains, what was and still is called progress. He wrote a lot against human exploitation, including slavery. 
but wrote very little about exploitation of nature. Nevertheless, I was very interested in one of his sermons, Sermon 5151, called The Good Steward. Stewardship is a very well used term among uh, eco Christian at the moment. We are all stewards of our environment. And very often, this notion of stewardship is linked to the reading, our reading of Genesis. But I believe that basing our understanding of stewardship on Genesis alone is dangerous, and it is bringing us back to belonging for the Garden of Eden, the biblical Arcadia. Wesley proposes something more practical than capi that capitalist society, i.e. us, will understand better than vegetarian lions and speaking snakes. Wesley used the parable of the dishonest manager from Luke 16, where the steward is a debtor, not a borrower. The debtor doesn't have the leisure to do all what he wants with what he has been entrusted with. Allow me my own parable of Luke 16. One day, Tom, 19 years old, is looking to go to join his friends who are meeting on the beach outside town. His mother offered him to take her electric car. Obviously, he has to be an electric car, aren't we? Because we're talking about environment here. She told him to be careful, but to have good fun and to make the best out of the car by using it to pick up other friends who may struggle to go to the party. Tom is very grateful and takes the car, but feels that he could make the car more powerful by getting a new battery in it. A lot of more powerful car. He did what his mum told him by picking up other on the way. He drove a bit faster than he should have, but he didn't create any accident, so all was fine. He impressed his friend with the improved car, but not so much his mother when he came back home, especially when the smoke, when the smoke came out of the bonnet of the car. The new battery was more performant, but not adapted to his model of car and it was a hazard for the rest of the engine. The car is not dead, but will need to be fixed. It is not because Tom was interested that therefore the steward, as a steward of the car, that he could have transformed the car. He had no right to do so. Did Tom consult with his mother before to put the new battery? No, but he nevertheless did what his mother told him. She never said to not put a new battery. Without consulting with his mother, he almost destroyed the car. Us with the environment is a bit like Tom. We are the stewardship of the creation, but not the ownership. We are only debtor. How much do we consult God when we are thinking about our environment? As we are only debtor and God takes care, takes back the central piece of our understanding of this world, we are called for humility. Not because we have the power to be great, but because we are not able to control what we do. So should we give up on progress and technology? No, no. Progress and technology can be a gift of God. We need to make sure they don't become a tools of evil. Should we dream of a new relation between humanity and nature? Yes, because harmony, but keeping God, humility knowing that it is something bigger than us at the center. The Holy Scriptures talk about environment, of course, our reading have been too anthropocentric, but it doesn't stop us to read them in a way to explore how we could be participating in the building of the kingdom of God 
where harmony is a cornerstone. Human harmony with the creator and human harmony with the creation. Until now, we have been struggling with our environment and with God. Maybe it is what to be Christian means in our 21st century, is to find harmony in the trinity of the creator, humanity, and the non-human creation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Laurent, for sharing this um, other approach, uh, which is and involves the theological uh, reflection, questioning um, from the current trending ways of addressing the care of the creation. Um, we get then to our final panelist of today. Um, bienvenido, Chris, de, desde Colombia, America Latina, y El calor, la comida, las arepas. Welcome, welcome to be here with us uh, from Colombia. Uh, Chris Ferguson, um, uh, to introduce him formally, he is an ordained minister and theologian in the United Church of Canada. He currently is serving as an international visiting professor at the Universidad Reformada in Barranquilla, Colombia. He has recently been appointed as the chancellor of Cunacui a platform of over 20% and evangelical universities in Latin America committed to the sustainable development goals from the UN. Uh, Reverend Dr. Ferguson is the former general secretary of the World Communion of Reformed Churches. Over the last 40 years, he has served in ecumenical leadership and advocacy roles in Canada, Latin America, and the Middle East. This has included representing the World Council of Churches at the United Nations in New York, as well as serving as General Secretary and Ecumenical Officer and Latin American and Caribbean Area Secretary for the United Church of Canada. He has served as Professor of Theology and Ministry at Latin American Biblical Seminary, now University in Costa Rica, and he was the International Coordinator of uh, PEAC and Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Colombia. He was a Protestant Chaplain for many years at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And most recently he participated in the Freedom Science Appeal of Interreligious Leaders Ring of, on COP26 to raise their level of ambition and take radical action. Welcome, welcome Chris. And we are very happy to have you here. Um, and thank you, the time is yours. Thank you uh, very much. I'm, I'm uh, quite excited uh, to uh, be part of a conversation where we're coming from such different places and uh, raising up such, uh, such different issues. Uh, um, I uh, did try to, uh, to, to think that the conversation in a certain way uh, uh, was wanting to directly ex um, address um, uh, COP26 uh, and um, uh, so, and the and the um, the issues that are related to uh, to uh, Christians and um, and uh, responsibility around the uh, the climate emergency, but I'll, I'll do it in quickly in um, in uh, in three ways. Uh, as uh, Matthew has begun, and to a different degree, Laurent, we. Um, I, where where I'm kind of coming from is as part of the um, uh, United Church of Canada, by the way, has both Wesleyan and uh, Calvinist and uh, Congregationalist roots. And um, uh, through our uh, Reformed uh, part, have participated quite strongly in the World Community of Reformed Churches. And um, previous to the World Community of Reformed Churches, that 
organization with many of the same members with the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. In uh, 2004, um, confronting with uh, 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 the the very, very harsh reality of, um, of uh, economic globalization, mostly hearing the cries from the global south about, about deepening poverty, death, uh, exclusion. Uh, and um, at the same time, seeing that the same root causes in an economic system that were being imposed that would brook no alternatives was also producing tremendously injurious effects on all the rest of creation. And um, to answer a bit Laurent's uh, uh, query, I'm, I'm going to embrace the question of talking about humanity as an integral part uh, of, of creation. Um, and that uh, the, the relationship between God and humanity in terms of the oikomia, uh, 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 the ekumene, sorry, uh, my language is getting confused in my pronunciation with it. Uh, um, uh, we'll use the in English the concept developed by the uh, World Council of Churches, which is Earth Community, uh, which is an ex uh, on a way of theologically problematizing that we are we are both part of all of creation, distinct from it, and certainly God is 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 uh, present incarnationally and through the Spirit in and through all of creation, but is more and different and the generator of creation itself. So, but. Just to keep going, we in 2004 understood great ecological crisis, a great um, theological crisis, and drawing on the Reformed tradition, which was uh, to which was very much uh, understanding there needed to be a reading of the signs of the times, and there needed and that it was urgent to read the signs of the times and interpret them, because we are at a we're at a particular moment. Um, from 1989 on with this accelerated um, uh, situation of, of globalization, particularly economic globalization, where the neoliberal um, market capitalist system uh, was being imposed as the only alternative and was being given attributes of um, divide the market would regulate everything trust the market. Certain sacrifices had to be made, um, but the market would set things right. A rising tide lifts all boats and many other uh, ideas. But most importantly, there is no alternative. Tina, this cannot be changed. People in the UK will recognize Margaret Thatcher's understanding of, uh, of the... And so from a theological point of view, this was when the, the, the community remembered the need to uh, pick up the question of what does it mean to proclaim the God of life in a world that is under the not only the economic, social, and military imp impact of an unjust economic system that is impacting both environment and people, planet and people, but at the same time, taking on aspects of being unquestionable, unchangeable, and with actually ontological properties. And so uh, to confess the, the earth is the Lord and all that is in it makes it impossible to say it doesn't belong to the banks, it doesn't belong to this mysterious market. The, the uh, proclamation then called for a confession of faith based on the reading of the signs of the times. And a document that was, came to be called the Accra Confession uh, emerged 
and and um, the the Accra confession, uh, basically in terms of this urgent uh, um, reading of the signs of the times, uh, talked about the the that the massive the root causes of massive threats to life, people and planet are above all a product of an unjust economic system defended and protected by political military might. Economic systems are a matter of life and death. And so somewhat in the spirit of the Barman confession in the attempt in, in the uh, Nazi period in, in, um, in Germany, was it a, a clear understanding that a, that a theological confession um, must address the political and social reality of, of the days because what is at stake in the scandalous world, to use the Accra Confession words we're living in, is the very integrity of our faith is at stake if we fail to stand with God in defense of the God's own creation. And that the, the test of the middle of this uh, is, as God is a God of life, is that which destroys, and remember John 10, 10, I, so that who, the thief comes how, to, you know, de, to, uh, to kill and destroy. And, but life is the principle or the, the, the call and the promise. Uh, for all that might have life and have it abundant, people and planet. An inseparable division between the cries of the earth, the whole creation groaning in travail, and at the same time, two things. Now, what was scandalous about calling this world scandalous, of course, for the World Community of Reformed Churches, was that we set it, as they say in Latin America, just on two plates. We just put it out there, the neoliberal capitalist system is uh, on the one hand, uh, it is uh, the market, uh, the market system that refuses to be questioned is a form of idolatry. Uh, and that you can't serve both man and planet. And no, we're not talking about economic systems in general. We are actually be able to name theologically and ethically that this is a system that is based on death, power, and destruction, and it must be changed. Okay, fast. Fast forward. Now we're into uh, we're into um, uh, 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 even greater accelerating um, situation with um, with uh, COP twenty six. A group of other, uh, and there has been a sense that one of the problems of making progress about the um, about the climate. Um, uh, emergency uh, and uh, we the extinction revolution all these people are up against uh, many many uh, um, uh, forces that simply do not believe that the description of the world in which we live and the role of our economic system is right and that the scientists are saying the sum total of these human actions due to hyper industrialization and so on are, and this entering into the Anthropocene, the era where one species actually controls the destiny of the other species, requires a description of reading the signs of the times. What is in fact going on? And do people of faith, religious leaders, and scientists, are they on the same page 
in that fact of saying there is an emergency that has a human cause that is destroying God's own creation, earth community, people and planet, and that must be addressed. Now, bringing the Accra Confession framework, we not only are calling for frameworks of ecological justice, but see those are on inseparable from moving forward in terms of, of the change of an economic system. So the religious leaders that got together uh, in Rome after a long period of virtual meetings said that among other things that has to happen for care of our common quotas is we have to ch change the narrative of development. We have to not know any longer talk about the only way forward is through growth and accumulation and exploitation of the environment, taking raw things and turning them into made things. Um, we instead uh, need to change a life-centered notion of development and that we need new economies, economies of life. We need to change our economic system. Now, on the most radical, this has to do with those who would uh, who who are very clear, like uh, myself and the communities that I've been part of. Um, one of the things that we would say, uh, and I wish the 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 uh, the uh, brother that's uh, working as a chaplain in the oil industry would say, the problem isn't isn't in itself carbon. The problem is capitalism. To be blunt about it, and that is a theological discernment, because the way the world is organized matters to God. And the way when the world is organized in a way that breeds death and destruction rather than life in its fullness, that is a theological spiritual question as well as an ethical one. The earth is the Lord and all that is in it. Jesus is Lord, not the banks, not the market system, not capitalism. And if you look, uh, and of course, we all look in vain as Lawrence did, a, another, Laurent did another search in the Bible. We look in vain to see where uh, capitalism and Christianity is joined. But we do see where there is a denunciation of mammon and forces that destroy. Um, now, much more to say. One of the things about, uh, and I'm, but not time, but one of the things about COP is that the question of justice and raising the, the ambition became very complicated at COP when the question is, is there fullness of life for all, was the problem that COP did not, and so far has not been able to either make responses that are con commensurate with the level of the threat, but more importantly, is a misunderstanding of for all. And that again, the richest and the most powerful continue to mark the kind of changes they will accept and so one of the principles we had put forward was this idea of differentiated responsibility. Countries that are coming, that are living through the, from the burden of a climate catastrophe that has been created by others, shouldn't be put in the same place as looking at the question of, uh, of uh, use of uh, fossil fuels and all the industrial processes. There needs to be a differentiated responsibility for who pays the bill, who broke what, and who has to fix it, and also the speed and the rhythm of which countries that are at the verge of industrialization and needing industrial processes in order to feed their, their people and are at a different place in terms of being able, um, being able to turn the boat around mid-channel, 
are a very different place in responsibility. So one size does not fit all in the climate justice discussion. And that was one of the unfinished agendas that we saw come out at the very last minute with the initiative from India. Uh, and we can talk more about that, but uh, I may be being too specific, but thank you. And I think I've used much more than my time. So. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. I think uh, the three of you have used the time uh, very wisely. Uh, I didn't have to stop any of you. So congrats on that, because usually on Zoom, that's a huge challenge. Thank you very much. And uh, for all our participants, um, let us take a short break. There has been a lot of information that has been shared uh, theologically uh, in terms of possible questions, engagement. So what I propose, and I think what we will do, is we will have 10 minutes of either a break. Uh, I'll split us in, in two groups. In one group, we'll have our panelists to have a short break themselves. And in the other group, the rest of the participants, you're very welcome to speak very informally there, to engage in either comments or questions, or just to grab a cup of tea. And in yeah, 10 minutes, could, yeah. yes. Yeah, and could I just ask you one quick thing? I noticed Please. you very kindly uh, posted the ACRA confession. If you could look at the WCC webpage, you could also find the appeal from the uh, religious leaders that we made at COP about raising the, but if you want to put a URL there too, that might help people. That is uh, very helpful. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. Uh, this appeal from religious people, it's actually the document that just came out from the meeting in Rome a few weeks ago, uh, uh, which um, the uh, Orthodox Patriarchs with uh, Pope Francis and representative of all the global communions where Matthew and Chris were present in the Vatican a few weeks ago. So I'm gonna post it, of course, during this break and maybe uh, also part of the dialogue. I'm very interested to listen more uh, on this appeal on where are we and where can we head up. So let's have a short break, um, 10 minutes. Uh, it's just 8.27. In 10 minutes, we come back to the main session and we can have a proper open dialogue and engagement and discussion. Uh, see you then in a few minutes. I'm gonna pause the recording just now for podcast. Uh, concluding words, good question. We've, we've had some really good conversation. Um, I, I, I return back to, to kind of my original proposition and thinking about now, now that COP26 has happened, um, there's been some success, there's been a lot of disappointment that, um, that uh, we, we must find ways to be sustained in, in the work to which we've been called. Um, and and what are what are the theological tools that we can lean heavily upon to help help us be sustained um, in this work, especially in the in these moments of disappointment, um, and and what are the frameworks that will be helpful to that? And so I've returned back to this question of of, of baptism and um, and and to holiness, that this work um, this work of care for creation and, and protection of our common home is um, something that maybe we're called to individually through baptism um, and the way that we live, but it is also work to which we, we all are called in, in various different ways and that it is a collective, um, a collective call to, to mission um, and to, to unity and to, to locate back in, into our work that our, our baptism um, impels us to deeper unity 
um, and that unity is also linked with with the way we live in the world and the, and the way that we seek um, to grow um, and desire to grow in, in in God's love. And so I hope that um, that this journey is one that that we continue to make together um, as people who are Methodist and Wesleyan, uh, some of us who are um, of other 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 religious traditions um, as well. Um, and there's lots of things. So continue to educate yourself and and um, continue to be in dialogue. I'm encouraged by by our meeting tonight. So thank you so much for asking me to to join. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, we can listen from you, uh, Laurent. Um, yes, concluding what is always a, a difficult one. Um, I, I do believe from, from the conversation we just had that it is very important that the church keep its prophetic, uh, prophetic voice, uh, and especially prophetic voice to explore what harmony could mean. Um, not just an empty word, but holistic harmony, how we can be harmonious within the environment we are in, harmonious with other people, and of course, harmonious in God's will. I think COP26, if we come back just to this very specific term of COP26, are shown us deep division between the very rich and the very poor, those who have the luxury to have time to wait and those who don't have because the issue is so close to them. But despite this diversity, despite the feelings that he has been the blah, blah, whatever that means, there's also some hope, hope in COP26 because we have seen people from all over the world coming in one place, and I dare to say as, as a Christian, to come in one place as in communion to share the same concerns. We may not get the, everything we wanted from it, but people came in communion around the same concern and the same hope that something can be done. And as a Christian, I can't see how things can be negative when people accept to be in communion. Uh, so yes, COP26 has not been perfect. Yes, COP26 has not saved the world, but I think that there's something good coming out of it, which have been people meeting and sharing. And that will be my concluding words. Thank you very much, Laurent. Um, Chris, we can listen. Yeah, the one of the the uh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm enriched by the by the the conversation, and uh, it's it's good for me to uh, to to uh, drink deeper from um, Wesleyan wells, having lived so long in the reform world, because that's part of my background too. So as I say, um, look, uh, yeah, good question was raised uh, in the uh, framing, I guess, by James uh, uh, about COP. Um, 26, a fullness of life for all. And uh, I think that, uh, again, I, I started with, with uh, John 10.10, uh, and that uh, if the fundamental spiritual discernment um, uh, of, this, uh, of this moment uh, is, are, those, are the sum total of our uh, human efforts uh, helping uh, uh, midwife or usher in God's promise of full life for all, it's clear. We are very far from that. Uh, we are in a position of deep brokenness and risk. Using the other part of the gospel, um, in my writings, I talk about a world fallen among thieves. 
And um, so looking at COP26, we can say one of the biggest struggles was to actually understand, to get up more, and this is where I think Lauren is correct, top 20 mobilized more people than ever before from different sectors to actually accept that life for all was in fact at stake. And that um, the response to it was inadequate, but now there was a common mobilization around the concern. The big problem with COP26 that will have to be, 20, will have to be resolved was the for all part. Because um, from the global south, this looked like a gathering of the only the few that could, only those that could get the right passes to get into the hall, only those that had certain kind of access to their national governments, only those whose airfare was subsidized or their train journeys were subsidized by other groups. This was not a, 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 a meeting of all people trying to come together with solutions if you look at it, if you zoom out big enough. And then it also told the story of what a world living under vaccine uh, apartheid is going to look like. And uh, the fact that everybody is mobilizing now in uh, nine countries of the world, mostly around Omicron, uh, but uh, most of the other countries aren't even at square one uh, with vaccines, uh, uh, says that one of the uh, revealing factors, not only of COP, but of the, the pandemia has been that, um, that not only is life seriously threatened today, but particularly uh, that for the next couple of years, it is clear that most of the world's efforts will be at protecting the life of the few and not the life of the many. And COP didn't change that, but it did mark a shift in uh, the perception of what's at stake.